When we think about the move towards more sustainable energy, we tend to think about the replacement of fossil fuels with renewable equivalents at source. But in reality, the renewable sources of energy we have aren't drop-in replacements for their fossil fuel predecessors. Transitioning from a present where we supplement fossil fuels with renewable energy to a future where we must be able to entirely depend on renewable energy will necessitate an overall of our entire energy ecosystem, from our sources of energy to their delivery for consumption. In meeting this challenge, Ireland stands to not only become a net exporter of energy to Europe, but an exporter of solutions to the world. However, in a world where we are vaguely told that a range of solutions will be required to meet our renewable objectives, there is little clarity on which solutions will make the final cut. So what are the challenges faced by investors, and how do they look at the future to decide where their capital is best allocated? To find out, I'm talking with two people who have impressive records of identifying and delivering what's been needed for our energy transition to date. They have both been the CEOs of semi-state companies and went on to found highly impactful renewable energy businesses. They are now focused on paving the path towards net zero. Eddie O'Connor of Supernode, the business behind the technology that will enable a European supergrid, and John Mullins of Amarenko, an Irish company playing a leading role in solar PV development internationally. I'm Paddy Finn, and this is The Electricity Exchange. Eddie, John, uh, it's great to get to talk to you. Um, particularly about this topic around investing in energy. So at the moment, we really see that capital markets are all really looking for an ESG slant on on a lot of investments and money is moving really into the green sector. So why is green so bankable right now? Um, I think most corporates across the world actually have to now um, behave with full ESG because if you go to a public market at the moment, if you raise public bonds, one of the first things that institutions will be looking at is where's your ESG report. So, I mean, that that's a broader issue about, you know, what, what where are you with respect to environment, where are you with respect to society, how you treat your customers, how you treat your people, and then governance and all of that, right? So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very broad church. Um, impact investment is 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 really where I think um, the people I speak to are very much involved in, and that could that's broader than just climate change and decarbonisation. It includes things like new vaccines in health or new med tech devices. Um, devices. It includes um, education, education developing world. It includes uh, citizen financing. It includes a whole number of different things. It could mean investment in electrical vehicle charging, hydrogen cars, you know, anything that you believe is going to make a radical change to the world. And and as it clearly decarbonization is at the very core. But if you narrow in the impact uh in terms of climate change investment, um I think um uh, Eddie and I, I think over over our years uh, working in this space have seen um uh, people start with private equity uh, the majority of where we started was with private equity, which was a limited amount of capital to get things moving in your company. Uh, but then progressively, and Eddie uh, has been at this longer than I, but uh, certainly um, what we have seen is uh, we now actually have more green capital out there than projects. Uh, that That is the reality. Um, there are, I'm in processes at the moment whereby 
there could be 25 to 30 different institutions basically looking to get into a platform because they have been able to get into a platform because um, they've been auctioned out of it in a bidding process. Uh, and as a result, they basically want to invest in development platforms that are actually going to make an impact. But more importantly, by the way, at the end, at the end of the day, that impact investment needs to have a rate of return. Right. So it's a shareholder value play with uh, an impact in terms of society. But I can tell you there are trillions, in my view, of capital out there, all chasing similar projects. Now, and I, I know this is an intro already, but it wasn't always like that. Um, but it is like that now. And if you, ha- if you have a track record, it is clearly much easier to raise that money. But and in fact, actually, you're finding institutions and insurance companies and very large family offices doing things that they would never envisage doing five to 10 years ago. Um, and certainly 20 years ago, uh, they weren't available mm. to play uh, at the at the very fledging uh, era of, of uh, decarbonization. Your, your wind farms, Eddie, for example, at the very, very start, um, you know, it was difficult to get project finance and, and, and you know, mm. raising money out of friends and family to get, get things going as I did it's moved on completely to a different space. Yeah, you're right about that. Uh, there's there's a wall of $70 trillion out there looking for investment. But unfortunately, our industry right now is on its knees. Um, <clears throat> the uh, Vestas recently announced that their profitability for this year will be um, minus 6%. And they're the most profitable wind turbine company. So investors, you know, need, you need a return. Pension funds have got to look after their members for, you know, 20 years in the future. You can't invest in a losing industry. And um, we, we are, we've gone out a fraction of the money that should be going into our industry, going into it right now. I mean, I think Bloomberg issued a statement there saying that we built 63 megawatts per week last year. If we want to decarbonize by 2050, we have to build 613 megawatts per week. Um, McKinsey uh, there very recently said, we need to be spending 9.3 trillion a year on renewables, um, as distinct from a current 3 trillion. Now, I didn't know that there was 3 trillion being spent, but we're not spending anything like the amount we need to decarbonize. And the reason is because our industry lacks profitability. Now, I'm not aware of uh, Amarenko and John's uh, ventures and how profitable they are, but it's only by taking very large risks at the moment that you make profit. Like we did in mainstream, we, we developed Nartnaguhi in Scotland and then we sold it for 665 million. But that was an extraordinarily high risk process. Uh, from the from the basic bread and butter, the oil and gas industry makes 22% profit before the latest surges, probably the mid-30s now. And we are making at at this level no profits. And for instance, in in Chile, uh, we had a, a company, Sendvian, uh, who had a, a big contract for nearly a thousand megawatts of wind going out of business, and that cost us an absolute fortune. And there used to be fifteen uh, wind turbine companies in Europe in the noughties. Now there are four, and and I think that Enercon don't have a chance of survival. Um, so you're down to three. Um, Siemens has changed its chief executive three times in the last three years. Can't make profit. And that's what we're trying to build a platform to actually take on the oil and gas industry and we can't do it. It's not happening at the scale or anything like the scale that it needs to for the future. And so we have to interve- intervene with the policy community and let them understand this 
that if you want this level of investment, you have to actually root some of the profits uh, that are inherently there. For instance, when we bid in Chile first, uh, let's say in 2014, 11 cents, 11 dollar cents was the price of a unit of electricity due to our activities and, and, and others. Uh, it's now three. So the uh, electricity consumer in Chile is absolutely gaining massively. When you look at what the Crown Estate in England did and the, the, the state of New York leasing offshore properties, they've made billions just from having that land. No risk just to have the land. And, and, and the, but the basic industry that's going to deliver on all this decarbonisation just is, is on its knees at the moment. Is there a, an issue caused by traditional electricity market design where electricity markets have operated on the basis of you know, marginal cost uh, determining a clearing price? And clearly now, I guess that would have promoted efficiency amongst thermal plant. Whereas now where we have zero marginal cost renewable energy uh, playing a very significant role in the markets, ultimately it's, it's going to be driving down the price um, below what the real value of the utility is. Mm. Oh yeah, I mean, we've, we have a dramatic effect on the price of electricity for now. Uh, but if we want to actually mo- go to a situation where we're in something like 100% renewable, uh, you know, wind and solar basically, bit of nuclear, a bit of hydro, some biomass, but very little. Um, you know, we, we have to think things out completely differently. Uh, we're going to build in Europe, if we want to decarbonize, something like 900,000 megawatts offshore. We need to build the same about eight to 900,000 megawatts of solar as well. Uh, and, and then you have completely decarbonized. But if you're going to take all this energy in the sea, and particularly in Ireland where you have this fantastic uh, wind resource off the west coast and indeed off the south coast as well. Uh, but it, it gets really high up north of Galway. Uh, 65% capacity factor is available there. Um, you know, this is this is there. It's there for us to do. But we don't have any grid. So, you, you know, and the, that'll be six times, according to Eamon Ryan, that'll be six times the demand in Ireland. And so therefore you have to find a way to get this into Frankfurt and Budapest, um, Warsaw, you know, it, 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 the whole of Europe it has to, if we want to decarbonize, and we do need to decarbonize. So, and this, this I guess, is almost like it's our oil moment, but it's it's uh, considerable infrastructure is needed to just make it make it a possibility. Um, and John, in terms of what you're seeing with the markets in which you're operating, so it's one point. It's it's one case when um, renewable energy is brought on board to the extent that it is going to supplement. Uh, fossil fuel generation, and it can reasonably well coexist. But when it starts exceeding thresholds of which it has a real material bearing on on the operation of the power system. Mm. So, you know, you're really, you're you're displacing conventional plant that's giving you inertia, it's giving Mm. you uh, high availability, etc. Is is that a ceiling that's, uh, that's starting to be reached in markets? And is that causing a limitation? So we effectively need the power systems now to adapt, to be able to absorb the renewable energy that is available to them. I, I you know, I'm I'm a firm believer that um, if you want to see what the future is like, let's look at some modern history. And I remember uh, a time when when Eddie was looking to try and put more wind farms on on the grid, and there was a moratorium on the grid, and we had no grid investment. I know you smile now, Eddie, but but uh, it, it was it was one of those damning decisions that basically was made that interrupted the rollout of onshore wind in Ireland for many, many years. And I, I actually was one of the reasons, if you remember, 
uh, why you decided Scotland next and then the United States. And, and in many ways, by the way, I made I made a speech the other day at the Cove and Harbour Chamber of Commerce, not, not far from my own home, where I basically stated that, you know, we would not be over-investing in Ireland, a bit like what Eddie would, would have said um, um, historically, uh, purely on the basis that um, the planning system here is absolutely broken. If we have any aspirations, in essence, to to move to that point whereby we 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 do as Eddie has has highlighted uh, and as we're participating to a lesser extent in um, to uh, you know really harness the wind resource that we have right across our coast. You know we have to speed up foreshore licensing. Um, you know I was chairman of a port. It was a, it was a nightmare trying to get foreshore licensing to do the things to import and export goods. So um, we really need to have a fast track emergency power approach to this. Um, you know, thankfully across Europe, since the war started, you've seen a number of countries actually bring in that. For example, in Portugal, we don't need to do an environmental impact statement anymore for a solar farm. Just go on and build it as far as they're concerned. So there's a lot of lessons. I mean, in this country, um, it, it is an absolute nightmare um, to get through the planning system. And I really worry about the intensity of grid and the expectation of grid in this country to be able to harness, to provide effectively the supply chain and the route map for um, those electrons, not just to stay in Ireland, but to be exported. And, and this is where maybe Supernode comes in to, to, a, to a larger extent. If you look what the Chinese did, Chinese have uplands up in the northwest corner of China. They put in 70, 750 kilovolt DC DC lines all the way down to the population centers. It, it's that type of uh, envisioning you, you, you actually have to have. So there's a fantastic opportunity. But I, 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 I despair at times when I hear politicians talking about, um, you know, hydrogen will solve everything. We have offshore, uh, you know, as if it's going to happen of itself. It can only happen if it's fully enabled by a country and fully enabled by the politics within. Uh, and frankly, that's where we've come unstuck. And by the way, as investors, um, and, and we are responsible to our shareholders, um, you, you, don't, you don't make decisions to invest in a country because it's the country of your passport. You actually invest in the country because it's a country that actually gives you the best enablement to achieve the impact that you want to actually carry out. And, and frankly, we're in 15 countries now. And I would absolutely say from a planning process alone, this is number 15 of 15. And in terms of use of capital, which again is available, um, it is much better spent in Oman. It's much better spent in Egypt or in Portugal or Spain currently, where we're, you know, we are 15% that spot in the market on solar made more money than the 85% that was contracted in the last 12 months. But that's just opportunity because of the crisis that we're in. Um, but frankly, um, you know, you can have all of the best plans on a shelf, but if you don't have an implementation program that's going to work, we're never going to get there. And this is where I despair. And our, our history so far in terms of renewable development isn't in solar. It's been it's been in wind. Mm -hmm. um, but as we look forward, one of the big challenges that are faced, of course, is that um, now we need to supplement the characteristics that we're losing from conventional plants. They sit there, mm -hmm. they can be started, they can be run, they can... Feed it enough fuel, it'll run for as long as you want it. And we need, in order to decarbonize, we need to try to um, uh, bring on new technologies that will actually supplement 
um, those characteristics. So, for example, the need for storage uh, on the system. And if we look at the investment case, so it, the sizing of storage on the system now is all towards high speed system services. Really, that's where the value is. So if we look at if we look at power and we look at time uh, for energy, so um, then basically you want lots of megawatts for a short period of time mm. at present. You've made most of your money in the first 20 minutes. So that is a world away from being able to deal with a, a two week frost in the country where you basically where you're left without wind for that period. You know what Hibernia means? Winter. Winter, yeah. Yeah, the Romans never came here because it says that's Hibernia. That's winter all the time. Yeah. Mm. You get your 14% capacity factor here. No, <laughs> you're a very lucky. You're very lucky. You came at a half percent. <laughs> but can I, can I go back to, you, you, know, you, were, you began off at an interesting point there about the, how we can use the, the conventional fossil fuel generators now as backup. And and how how are you going to uh, you know do all this uh, when they don't exist mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. you've done away with them? And the characteristics of wind and solar are both the same in one regard. Wind is variable and solar is genuinely intermittent. Uh, you don't get any at night. Uh, so if you can imagine, there's 200 storms arrive off Ireland every year. Okay, they travel at 56 kilometres an hour basically. And and they, they travel over Ireland usually. Now they can come from any direction, but mainly from the southwest. And they travel up and it and, and it peaks in Ireland. And then it peaks in England, much higher peak with much more installed capacity than Holland, Belgium, Germany, Denmark, and so on and so forth. Um <clears throat> when you put in a big grid there to that, and you capture, let's say, a big ramp up in Ireland, you have a lot of generation off the west coast, ramps up. Then, because you're, if you are heavily interconnected, your profile looks kind of flat. This is this is this is not a trivial fact. This is uh, gets to the heart of how much investment in storage do you have to put in. And then, when you look at wind and solar, if you put your wind or solar down the south and your wind in the north, which is makes an awful lot of sense. The International Energy Agency came out with a graph there recently, which showed almost complete complementarity. I mean, I couldn't, if I'd drawn it myself, I couldn't have, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't have been so bold as to assume that such such balance was achievable. So again, that requires your big grid to be able to to bridge those two. Very big, heavy connector between the Mediterranean basin where you get your 30% capacity factor with mm-hmm. solar and, and with a great uh, wind resource in the north. And we've we've hit this, we've hit the stops now. In Germany, in the last two auctions, there was no wind awarded because they are already at at curtailment of 9% due to the variability of wind um, and solar because they're both in Germany. Um, And and in Ireland, we're at, uh, well, I know on one of our farms down in Kerry, we were at 12% uh, just curtailed off. Um, And when you get to, uh, uh, given the lack of a a continental-wide grid, we're now in a bind where you can't do very much more on land or anywhere else because how do you cope with this variability without building an enormous amount of, of storage? So the grid is the first big answer that you need. Well, first, to capture the resource and to bring it to the people, and secondly, to balance, uh, to, to do this balancing effect. In other words, how do you completely get away from fossils? And so that's a very, um, like, really highlights it's a very fundamental problem driving a fundamental direction shift that we need to take in terms of the investment in grids. Uh, whereas I suppose to date, everything is looking at 
key local issues. And if we, um, I suppose, in terms of the the timeline for delivering uh, a super grid, um, we're really focusing push. Uh, sorry, we're really focusing past. 2030 in terms of delivery. Oh yeah, you have to be. Yeah. I mean, it, in in the in this utility game, this big, highly capital intensive business, if if you haven't planned for it for ten years ahead, you're probably not going to make it. It's just everything John mentioned mm-hmm. and the difficulties of planning here. And planning in a lot of places is tough, but it's it's really bad here. Um, but that's just planning. Then, then you have to, you know, you have to change the policy in many countries. You have so you have to interact with the policy community, the politicians, civil servants, their advisors, etc., uh, and convince them. So it's it's really, you know, we're we're engaging this once-off transition to sustainability, and the world has never been here before. Has never had to do this, or never appreciated that it did. So we're in a really difficult, uh, if you like, policy environment. And and all the stuff that John said is all correct. Um, and I know that whenever, you know, I, I've met the presidents, the, pres- the prime ministers, the ministers of energy and all these countries go into and, and, you know, the question on their lips is, how do you do this? Because we've seen it done in, in various other places and, and and the world doesn't know how to do this. Um, so, so, you know, there's it, <laughs> that's part of the problem. Yeah. And so uh, we need then to focus on net zero is the final goal. And where does 2030 feature along that rather than us setting an objective for 2030, which is an an inappropriate stepping stone towards our net zero? Yeah. So, I mean, I take a view that 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 solar in Ireland has a role to play maybe for the next four to five years until offshore comes on on stream. I'm convinced by that. We have to make progression. Um, Eddie's correct is. We're going to run out of of distributed generation locations, um, you know, fairly quickly. We already are actually in, in many many instances, but you know what? You know, both Eddie and I have have had the the honor of running semi state companies in in this country, and um, you know, I, my first job was uh, a shift control engineer. Uh, when when Eddie was doing all the purchasing in ESB, I I was I was uh, controlling the burn as we call it in the national control center. And the one thing I learned at 21 or 22 years of age is that you actually need to have quite a variety of things to make a, to make the cake. And, and frankly, um, I, I get a sense that there are, there are people, again, going back to the body politic, that actually take a view that the solutions are there and the solutions are instant when they're not actually because you actually have to get the right mix. Um, and, and frankly, we haven't had the right signals, for example, on a number of things. Um, as a renewable investor in Ireland or in any other location, until such time as we have all of those battery technologies and other sources of of uh, capability to reduce the level of curtailment for renewables, we still need to actually have gas generation. So therefore, the concept of not having LNG, by the way, is absolute. You know, it it, it it's 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 blind man's bluff, right? In my view, because Corrib, I just give an example. Corrib is going by twenty twenty nine. We will have no indigenous gas anymore in the country. We are, we've got two interconnectors to a country that's not part of Europe anymore. We have no storage in this country. Uh, we have two weeks uh, pipe storage, by the way, for only domestic customers. Uh, and frankly, if we had a gas crisis between now and 2030, renewables would not be the answer. So that there are much higher order issues going on here that, that will have to be addressed. Gas is a transition fuel until such time as we've got the right mix of offshore, onshore, solar, and all of the technologies such that we can actually have an appropriate control system. 
Now, those of us who were engineers did control systems in our in our undergraduate years, and it's really important to make sure that you actually don't get out of control. And and it's really important that we actually have as many tools available to us as possible until our main diet is going to come from offshore wind. There's no doubt about that. It is going to dominate the horizon in this country. Uh, but there is a transition and you can't skip steps because if you skip steps and make short-sighted decisions with respect to energy security, it will ruin the economy and then we will have bigger issues to deal with. So in my view, um, there is a kind of rhetoric that is quite dangerous, um, that frankly, it's it's all about renewables, like stupid. It's actually not all about renewables when it comes to the holistic nature of, of energy transition. Um, like we're building a, an energy storage battery that's one of the largest in Europe. We're building one in the southwest of France. It's 100 megawatts, um, building it with NIDEC. Um, and, you know, in a country, by the way, that does not have the same curtailment statistics that Eddie mentioned, right? It, it doesn't have that level of penetration of renewables that we do, right? Very small in comparison. And it has nuclear. It's got big inertia, you know, machines basically on its grid. But the government is supporting these particular processes. Going back to what Eddie said earlier, the policy is actually saying we're going to have to start this market now in expectation of high, having higher penetration of renewables in the future. It's exactly the same decision in France that says if you're a farmer and you want a free barn, talk to a solar company because we'll give you enough money in the tariff to allow the roof of that barn a fabulous barn, 100 metres by 30 metres. You would not see any barn like this in Ireland uh, with uh, with 100 kilowatts on top. And the 100 kilowatts pays for the barn, for the farmer. And we're an agricultural nation and we actually have, don't have that simple policy. I, I just think that it does come back to the enablement in the market. Um, and frankly, um, whilst Eddie and I are risk takers in, in what we do, I'm not too sure that we have too many of them um, in, in Ireland that understand where we're ultimately going to go and the risks that we're taking by making some short-sighted decisions or some short-sighted policy statements and, and where we have to get to in terms of a step-by-step -step, like salami slicing your way to a full net zero. Um, so that transition is going to have to be carefully managed, but I'm not too sure that we have too many people with what I would call a holistic view uh, of the energy market um, making decisions on our behalf as citizens. And when we look at, at pricing signals to stimulate investment, uh, when we look at near-term objectives in the power system, like the need for a, a ramping margin service or a fast frequency response or a certain or, or inertia with synchronous condensers, it's pretty easy for between the system operators and the regulators to set out in their mind's eye as to what the pricing signal is to stimulate that. But then when you're looking beyond that and you're looking at something at something that um, really requires deep research to uncover the actual viability and possibility, but you know that the need is there and the assumption is if there's need, there's value. What's needed then in terms of to, as the, the pricing signal to stimulate investment? Is it is it EU policy? Because I, I assume EU policy will always be stronger than the national policy in this regard? Well, particularly in Ireland. Uh, I mean, the EU has made, <laughs> made a dramatic difference to Ireland in every conceivable way. You know, we were a, a barely inhabited island off an island off the mainland uh, 
up till the time we joined the EU and we were losing population at a phenomenal rate. And now the population is almost double what it was, you know, in, in 1960. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're getting on very well. Uh, but the kind of thinking that, that you have now, and it's, it, I, I agree with John when he says, you know, there's very little thought being put into what's it, what's it going to be like to operate? And you, you mm. alluded to it yourself there, you know, w- without this balancing, the ability to turn on up and down, you know, put your gas burner up and down as, as mm. needed. It's like a jet engine, you know, up mm. and down, taking off, it's at full thrust and then in the cruising it's it's way down and and you know without that how are we going to actually do this and there's there's a number of solutions and you have to bear these in mind the bible said without a vision the people perish um and and that's where i come in and i base a lot of my stuff on on on, on thinking on this that you have to you know, whatever happens, and John's right about gas in the short term, I mean, there's no doubt about that, but there's enough guys out there solving that particular problem. So I don't see myself as having any role to play at all in that. Mm. I see, how are we going to do this? And you, you need a big grid, you need a lot of storage, and you need demand side management. This is very important. Uh, price signals, instantaneous price signals that if when the price exceeds, I don't know, X, then you switch off, you know, so many hundreds of thousands of freezers. People who've already pre-agreed with you that you can do that. And then if it, if, if you continue to have a shortage, and you alluded to, you know, a, a shortage of wind, wind power in any particular area, well, then you just have to keep on going with that. And there's, you can quench a lot of load without actually uh, reducing the service levels for customers. But again, back to this issue, this short-term issue of lack of profitability in our... Uh, yeah, and, and by the way, I agree with what John's doing is great in, in terms of the solar. Every roof in Europe, by legislation, should be made out of solar panels. I can't see why they don't do this. Mm. Just no matter where you're building, mm. uh, whether it's a factory or it's a house, just make the... I, and I've seen this in Germany. It's not mm. something that... <laughs> That's, you know, pie in the sky. There, there are at least three companies supplying these tiles and they seal your house and they keep the rain out, but they also make electricity. So you have a roof that's a little power station and you could have that all over. And that would make, it's not going to cure your big industrial load and it's not going to cure, you know, the commercial load, but it is going to deal largely with household load. I guess the challenge is that you don't, you know, great system operators are tasked with, you know, you alluded to it earlier, mm. uh, John, they're, they're tasked with not making sure that it's, the power system doesn't just work well all the time. It has to work perfectly all the time. That's and that right. the effects of the fallout of that not being the case is, is key. And I suppose there's a, a strong impetus not to go down the route of, let's say, what's been seen in South Australia, where you just see a huge ramping up of embedded solar resources on the system that are uncontrolled. But the fact is that now we're at the point where controllers, you know, the inverters are controllable, so they mm. can be actually brought in and it's about it's about harmonizing them. And one mm. thing that I suppose shocked me of late was that when um, visiting ESB Network's project in Dingle, where they were showing, uh, you know, demand response in action, um, being, you know, every house in Ireland is supposed to have an import capacity of 12 kVA. But we looked at, so we visited a house and the import capacity of 12 kVA Actually, there were six houses all being served off a single 15 kVA transformer. And I was quite surprised by this, mm. um, only to be told that's representative of about 40% of the residential housing stock in Ireland. Now, mm. where this comes from, I guess, is this was reasonably, it was optimal system design. So you don't optimize, you don't design for the peaks. You you assume that there's diversity in terms of how yeah. people use power. Behavior, yeah. Yeah. But the challenge now is as we bring in, as you electrify transport and heat, 
they are taking away the diversity. So now you need to artificially try to bring that back in. And just on the mm-hmm. point of, of demand response, and I guess that is very much what, what we focus on at Viotas, you know, there's, there's two strands of demand response, one being implicit and the other being explicit. So implicit is you're given a price signal and people, people respond to it. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, coming back to the reliability of operation of the power system, the grid operator can't have dead certainty in terms of what that response is, particularly in short time. So as, but it's also important to bring demand response into the explicit role, which is what, what, what we work on, mm-hmm. which is uh, actually bringing uh, considerable megawatts to the disposal of the system operator. It's mm-hmm. declared like a power station mm-hmm. and they can dispatch you like a power station. And I, I, I suppose the key difference there for the value for the customer as well is that when you look at um, implicit, so price responsive, you, you're only benefiting when you are taking action. Whereas with explicit, you're providing uh, benefit just by, by being there. So you, by being available, so like a power plant on standby, you're providing benefit. And, uh, like I often say, like a burglar alarm in a house doesn't just provide you value when you're robbed. It's, uh, it's good yeah. to have all, all the time. And I suppose that is the one of the range of services. And it kind of brings me into the, the point around the fact that, so we look at demand response, then the storage industry looks at storage and there's, there's areas where they, where they complement each other. Then, you know, you look at your other technologies like your synchronous condensers as well on the system, et cetera. Now, when we look out towards the delivery of the solar and wind onto the system going forward, um, it's, its use is going to be predicated on a lot of other technologies and services playing mm-hmm. their role to mm-hmm. actually allow the grid operators to utilize the resources that you're bringing to bear. And be it also through uh, changes in technology and how the grid itself functions. So mm-hmm. I suppose previously when we, you know, uh, would have invested in wind up to a certain point of, of um, penetration on the system, you got your return. You know, you there was mm-hmm. a reasonable likelihood it was unlikely to be curtailed. But for investors now going forward, particularly when you look at um, at feed-in tariffs saying that mm. you're going to still be exposed to negative pricing and that that's going to continue, how do investors view this in terms of the um, where the risk should where should the risk sit? If you deliver your solar project, yep. but another facet of the grid in which you're reliant to have it used isn't delivered, mm. is that your responsibility and should you be held to well, account? I, I can just give you the most recent history of that, which is last Friday's auction, which was probably one of the most interesting auctions. Uh, in which country, John? Here. In Ireland, yeah. So yeah. there are a number of learning points coming out of that. Number one, by the way, the CapEx increases and the supply chain was absolutely within the numbers that came out. So... Um, the average price went up by around 25 euros a megawatt hour right across the board uh, for both wind and, and for solar. A lot of wind guys didn't go into it because they they prefer to go merchant because they're part of utilities and they're going to internalize effectively the merchant. Um, very late in the day, a study was done about the constraint level on the grid uh, going out into the 2030s. And you're absolutely correct about the resilience piece, right? Um there was doubts about the Celtic interconnector, for example, and this goes back to super nodes, et cetera. Having outlets, by the way, and inlets, by the way, is really important because you then have resilience of grid um, uh, as a result of that. And, and constraint levels uh, would go up enormously if the Celtic interconnector or other interconnectors don't actually come on uh, in the medium term in 25, or sorry, 27, 28, 29. 
And, and um, you know, we were looking at around 12% constraint levels. So, so there are many ways to skin this cat, by the way, right? You know, I really think that, you know, demand side management is absolutely there and there needs to be a greater emphasis on it. It needs to be supported again by policy. Um, uh, and I think uh, with respect to um, grid, um, you know, we have had a history of investing a grid behind the developers. And we've never had a history of investing in a grid ahead of developers. And, and frankly, we're going to have to do that. Not alone for ourselves, but more importantly, for export. Uh, because it is that, you know, barrel of oil that we'll be able to sell into the future into, into our, our colleagues in the European Union. And it'll get us away, by the way, from the Boris Johnson factor, where we might actually find that, you know, we have resilience against actually uh, gas being reduced in the two interconnector pipelines in 2040, 2041 or 2042. So this is, this is, this is where we have to go. You have to think about where, what could happen in 2050. There's, you mentioned this, the whole thing about integration and uh, it, uh, something I should mention, you know, we have about 300 million vehicles in Europe and, and let's say we have an average of 100 kilowatt hours in the batteries of those vehicles by 2040. I think we probably get there. Uh, there's this massive acceleration in the electric car and there really is no <laughs> no competition for this. This is wonderful. 14, 14 different parts as com- compared with 1,100 1, in, a, in a fossil fuel car. But you, it, it, I, I started doing some sums recently about what if that of all those batteries which the public utility didn't have to invest in were made available to the public uh, to support, um, you know, variability of wind and solar. And I start doing some graphs on that. And actually, you save a vast amount of money and make cheaper electricity as a result of, because I've made my investment in my car and I'm not thinking about the grid. And, and in fact, you know, the batteries are needed to get me from A to B. But if I was connected through, uh, again, a smart meter, but that exists already uh, with the grid and you could nominate, you know, I, you know, I need enough to go home this evening and I have to visit my mother as well. So, mm. <laughs> you know, I want to get, get left with 40%, but I've got 80% in now. So you can have access to 40% of my power. That's quite possible to do. And you save uh, at the upper end of this, and I won't go into all the assumptions, but you could save 1.9 trillion in investment in mm. batteries. Mm. But even if you had very minimal take up of this, you'd be talking about 100 billion. That's the very minimum you could get from this. So we're going to see, it, it's an interconnected whole, as you alluded to. There's no, uh, there's no one magic bullet. There's no one particular philosophy that's going to work here. You, you just... Technology is going to be in so many different areas, and and somebody has to kind of start putting those together at the policy level. Well, how how do we how do we give price signals to incentivize this, and uh, you know, and, and stop doing that, and all that stuff. So I just thought it was very interesting about batteries. It really, and even the EV manufacturers, they set aside um, they set aside a value to contribute towards the recycling of the of the batteries. But the reality is that. If your electric car drops down to 80% of its original range, you may change or you may change the battery. But that power to weight or the distance to weight is irrelevant in a 40-foot container. So then you get the secondary life of those EV batteries as well that can go down. So I suppose making, continuing to make use of, of, of that technology and the role that that can yeah, potentially it, it, play. It's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a director of a company which um, uh, it does uh, recycling, refurbishment of data centers and all of that. And um, in that there are power supplies and there are batteries. Right? And these batteries basically would be in data centers. They've probably never been used. 
in, in anger because they're there actually to act as a backup over two years for a data center, let's say. So these are absolutely non-degraded, but yet they, they go out effectively with the change of data center technology, as you know, every two years or three years effectively to change out. So we, 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 we scoured the world and we couldn't find somebody who was actually taking these batteries and putting them into a new array or in a 40-foot container uh, and actually relabeling these, you know, essentially a, a reused but not used in, in essence, uh, um, um, you know, battery. <clears throat> I, I think we're going to see quite a significant amount of that happening as we're already seeing EV batteries coming to the end of their life or acceptable life for, for a consumer. Um, and as we see data center batteries, you know, uh, coming to the end of life or even UPS batteries coming to the end of life, <clears throat> there's a real opportunity to create new products and services coming out of of, of, of that partic- those particular technologies. And at the moment, the worry is, where are they going? You know, yeah. are they ending up in landfill? <laughs> but I hope not. I would hope not. There's an awful because lot of copper in those batteries. And, and there's lithium. a shortage of lithium as well. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that raises another question as to, so those batteries were sitting in data centers doing nothing uh, for the majority of their life. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge opportunity there in terms of the actual embedded resources that exist in data centers to help support the system as it stands. Eaton, who was supplying a lot of batteries to the data center industry, um, they prepared a paper, I think it was with Bloomberg, uh, where they were highlighting that their batteries can certainly serve the two purposes at once. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I think that there's still, a, that there is a considerable latent value in terms of what data centers can provide to the system yes. um, beyond particularly there's a, I suppose there's a lot of uh, data centers that are supporting the renewable en- industry through corporate PPAs. Um, and that's per- the procurement of renewable energy, but there's a, a key role that they can play in also enabling it because in mm. terms of being able to use their existing infrastructure to provide the, the, the types of reserve services that are needed to, mm-hmm. to raise the ceiling on the amount of renewables that can be used that what, rather than just procuring it, there's a real opportunity for them to enable it. Um, and uh, I suppose then there is con- accumulating pressure on that industry. So perhaps there this would be a, You're right. an avenue to, to write, change the narrative. Change the narrative might change yeah. the narrative for them. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose just rounding back on the point that grid always seems to come behind the, the integration. Yes. So, yes. so Eddie, when you look forward at, you know, you're quite unique in terms of your investment in an area that's, you know, so it's not uncertain. The need is absolutely certain, but just the route to implementation has a long path ahead of it. What are the major barriers and obstacles that you need to see changed in order to make that uh, supernova reality for, for our lives? Well, just to, to explain to, to your, your viewers and listeners, um, you know, the, what supernova is, it's a, it's a new uh, cable system. Uh, that's going to allow the supergrid to be built um, and to both capture and distribute and transmit the the 900,000 megawatts that's going to have to be uh, built offshore in Europe because that's where the real resource is. And also to link up, uh, again, for what we said previously, with the with the great southern resource around the Mediterranean. Um, so that's, that's what uh, Supernode is doing. And we're doing it using um, superconductivity, which is... At certain materials, when the, when you reduce them below a critical temperature, they stop uh, conduct. There is there's no resistance whatsoever, and and we've had a look at that. Um, and, and 
you can't actually decarbonize without supergrid. And actually, you can't decarbonize and you can't build a supergrid without superconductivity because there isn't enough copper. If you were trying to build this in, in, in conventional high voltage DC, um, you, there isn't enough copper. And I'm not so sure that even with, with opening copper mines, you would have enough. And we are the actual replacement for that. One ton of yttrium, which we use to, to it's a, a rare earth. One ton of yttrium is the equivalent of 30,000 tons of copper. Now, but, but that's so thin that it has to be supported. So it comes down to one to 300 if you take the other materials that are present in the tape, in the superconducting tape. It's still one 300 uh, the weight of what you have in copper. So, so we're on to a winner here. Um, in in turn, uh, and the and the big the uh, to answer your question directly, the two big challenges are one is the technology. Can we get the heat transfer low enough from the environment into the, where this superconducting cable is, and and that's what we're working on now. Uh, but the other one is to uh, get the policy environment writ large in Europe, so that they're not going around talking about the great huge imposition on the body intellectual of carbon capture and storage. This nonsense has been going on for 25 years now and it's never going to amount to anything. And then the latest, of course, the hydrogen economy. And nobody has pointed out that if you, I mean, if you, how do you burn metal? Well, you take a feed of oxygen, a feed of hydrogen, bring them together and burn it. Now, you want to get the hydrogen back out of the water that's that's created by this. You have to put at least the same energy back in. That means that you're always going to have, you'll only get out 70%. If you put in 100 megawatt hours, you're going to get out 70 megawatt hours. And that's before you start burning it. And once you start burning it, the laws of conventional thermodynamics come along. And so you're into, you know, car no efficiencies and all that stuff that we learned in university. Um, so hydrogen is not your solution here. But the oil and gas industry sold Europe uh, when we were all locked down uh, two years ago. They descended on Europe and now they're going to spend 550 billion on the hydrogen economy in Europe. Now, you need the 70 million tons of hydrogen that need to be generated from water every year to replace what's exactly there uh, as used as a feedstock. But to talk about uh, hydrogen cars as, comp- as compared with electric cars just doesn't add up. There isn't, it's just nothing competes with electricity for most applications. And I'd imagine that hydrogen will play some role, um, but I definitely would agree with that there's been quite a bit of fanfare almost promoting it as somewhat of a silver bullet uh, solution. And a concern that I'd always have with Anthony that's promoted as a silver bullet solution is that it takes attention away from uh, a lot of the other very viable solutions. Um, I'm just really interested to know What's the size of the conductor um, used for? Well, we have a one tenth, uh, one tenth. It's about it's about that uh, thick. Uh, we we built that already, and and we demonstrate we have we've we're buying lots of machinery now to test out our various insulation methods and and a vacuum. Drawing vacuums is very important here because you know the, a vacuum is the most perfect way of insulating, but then vacuums are they're hard things to deal with because um, various. Molecules like air, uh, particularly hydrogen, but also oxygen, diffuse in through the walls. And so the vacuum gets filled up eventually if you put in a real hard vacuum. So that's not an option open to you uh, if you want this thing to last for 30 years or 40 years. Um, it, but it's, it's great fun. I mean, we've, we've, it's going to take us 60 million to, to, to get the prototype up and running at, at technology readiness level six by 2025. 
And by 2029, then we should have a saleable product that will just transform the grid. Um, and and we, we need to convince Europe that this is necessary. Uh, one of their own reports in one of their research findings says it was, but there's a big difference between that and then becoming a directive, you yeah. know, which is what we need. I suppose the challenge that you're going to face when you're talking about something like microns of a conductor is that yeah. people think in nuts and bolts. They like what they can see, they like what they can imagine the mechanics of. So people uh, like to really get to a point of this being in policy, there's a whole mental shift even for people to be able to think at this, at the level of what this can do. Something that isn't, doesn't really, they don't have a frame of reference almost for it in terms of your, your typical engineer. I'm an electronic engineer and um, I'm really uh, having to come up to speed to try to even visualize what this is doing. Yeah, I mean, the, that's that's part of, but, but, but you know, we've been... We've been on this pathway now for 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 a long, long time since 1997 when we set up Air That you have to you have to explain to people. It's you have to find imaginative ways of of communicating with them, and some of them are quite reluctant. And you know, for instance, uh, the company that John and I used to work with, the ESB, they wrote a, a statement in 1988, and it hasn't changed since. We will not innovate. We will not innovate. Right. A, a company that doesn't innovate. What? Where would you be oh, if you know. didn't innovate? Where would you yeah. be if you didn't innovate? You wouldn't exist. And that that was set out in paper. That was set out in paper. Um, and uh, I, I well recall, I mean, I had a great regard for Paddy Moriarty, who was the chief executive at the time. But but Airgrid are a bit like that now, mm-hmm. unfortunately. I don't mind saying that. I don't mind being, being promulgated there because we've, we've been onto them for a long time. We could cure an enormous number of problems in, in the um, distribution and transmission system in Dublin. It's it's broken. It's quite badly broken, actually, with using superconductivity like they did in SNR and so on. Airgrid don't want to know about it. Or do you want this? The semi-states also, though, they're hugely entrenched in terms of almost legacy hardware, legacy infrastructure. That Back to the point that you made about hydrogen. Hydrogen, you were saying about the vested interest there, basically saying the hydrogen economy, we continue to make make use of our existing gas infrastructure, etc. So so maybe that's a reason why we but don't want the semi-states see, to... This is the problem. You, you can put in 15 to 20% of yeah. your uh, electricity, uh, or sorry, your, your hydrogen in, into a pipe for gas. Yeah. But that's about it. Yeah, but maybe the point the point is that maybe that's why you don't want the semi states to be tasked with the innovation because they'll no, continue to try true. to sell you more of the. Well, it makes room for three of us here. More of know, the same. Yeah. Great. <laughs> and look, I mean, the, 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 I, I know certainly um, innovation would have been would have been difficult. We set up a fund or innovation fund in in Borgash when I was there, but again, it wasn't sort of you know large scale. You know, for a company that was 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 earning the profits, it was it was earning. Probably a ten million innovation fund, basically to support various, um, you know, entrepreneurs and venture, you know, venture uh, capitalists to 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 go out and 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 come up with new energy solutions. Um, but the reality is that you know, semi-state companies are 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 not set up to 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 really uh, be at the the vanguard of 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 what say Eddie is doing in terms of supernova, what what others are doing in terms of new devices. Uh, you know, it, it's a different, you know, type of company you know, is going to do that. And it should always be like that, in my view, because, you know, it's extremely difficult in a, a company that is tasked with, you know, fairly serious things to go off and divert itself into uh, basically what are skunk works in many ways for them. Uh, in saying that, they should be the first people to, in my view, assist 
Irish technologists to try and, and, and get pilots going uh, such that we do produce energy solutions that are not just for ourselves, by the way, but are there for global consumption. Yeah. Uh, and that's where I think we, we, we have not had a great track record. Well, I, I suppose recently we are experienced with AirGrid has almost been to the contrary in that. Um, so to take part in DS3 system services, if you're not a proven technology, you need to go yeah. through what's called a qualification trial process. So they'll bring in unproven technologies. You'll demonstrate its capability and then you can commercially take part in the market. And so we would have brought in, let's say, our, our, our high speed um, uh, frequency response systems. Yeah. They they monitor 8,000 8, times a second and they'll... Really? Yeah, 8,000 times. So when we entered the market as a demand response provider in 2013, we were setting the market for one second monitoring. And now it's like okay. 8,000. So each of our power... It's primary reserve. Yeah, yeah. Well, fast, right down to fast frequency. So mm. like we'd have, it's a case of if a power station trips in some place in the island, at the opposite side, we'll be turning off loads well within 100, 100 milliseconds. Okay. And okay. so that's, and that's what we target and that's what we do. And these are tens of megawatts of loads. Mm. And uh, the the process for that was demonstrating it to AirGrid, demonstrating that it could work and then you can commercially take part. And where that has really stood to us very well, actually, is then when we uh, established in Australia, because mm-hmm. with this DS3 system services program, AirGrid is held in high regard internationally in terms of its integration of uh, intermittent uh, low inertia renewable energy using um a, or at least allowing for a reasonably novel approaches to, to solving the problem. Mm-hmm. So I suppose having gone through that process with AirGrid and AirGrid being held in high regard in Australia and us having gone through that process with AirGrid and being commercial here kind of got us a, a, by association. It was what we were doing was somewhat validated. In well, the only regard. need now is to bring in the superconductor Absolute. with that solution, by the way. And, I know, and, yeah. uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And when we, just coming back, I suppose, you know, there's a, a challenging mountain in terms of like the, the need to change like inform minds in the education process for uh, something like superconductors. But obviously, John, you know, what you're delivering in terms of solar, mm. we see it in front of us. There's like so many international examples. It's just evident that this is a, is a good solution. And there's also money waiting at the door of deployment. Um, and but what are the key obstacles that is it your planning, your grid infrastructure? Well, what are the key obstacles that need to be addressed in order to actually have the country reach its potential um, of solar integration or other renewables for that matter? I mean, I think that, you know, the history of renewables in Ireland is a very interesting history. I think Eddie could write nine to the 10 chapters, I think. But, but uh, you know, I, I remember ESB's attitude when Bella Corrick was built. You remember it well. I, and, and they'd say, this will never catch on. <laughs> And then you did the second one. I was up there. I think it was, was it uh, actually the second one that came on? I think it was Barnsmore Gap, I think, or one that's of right, them. That's right. right. That wasn't ours. That was, I, I, I think I it was Scottish well. Power, one yeah, of them. Yeah. Yeah. One of them, yeah. One of them, yeah. And, 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 and they still said, this is not going to take off. <laughs> and, and even in my time in ESBI, I, I kept on saying to the guys, you know, we should really be thinking about, you know, over and above, because we were investing in gas turbines internationally to really think about wind. Uh, and then, you know, um, there were a lot of obstacles along the way in terms of, of wind farms. I mean, just market obstacles, by the way, to begin with, forget about the planning issues. But then, I, you know, when, when I set up Amarenko, we were working in France and thankfully they had a very good regime and, and the planning system is much easier. Um, but then uh, when I started prospecting with farmers in County Cork and County Waterford back in 2014 and told people this is what I wanted to do, 
um, they all thought I was crazy. Um, you know, but crazy is good, by the way, in this in this game. Um, and it's it's great because uh, I I got a I got a picture of two Murphys uh, construction trucks and JCBs moving in on site this morning in White Church in Canturk, right? Where we're where we started now finally to build and and uh, but it took seven years. Mm-hmm. But nobody really looked at what the trends were with respect to the price of solar panels and where they were going to go. Nobody looked, and you remember this in terms of onshore wind, how big they were going to get and how cheaper they were going to get over time. And in offshore, we're still not at the the peak of where offshore wind is is actually going to go in terms of you know size of units, 20, 30 megawatts at a time huge. and want huge, huge, huge turbines. You know, this is where the vision starts. It starts with where you think the technology solution is going to be and you work your way back and you integrate it. Um, but it, it's great as both for Eddie and for myself that we are going around the country and I, I my time in Borgas set up a renewable division and bought SWS and, and built up that company, went on to Brookfield. <clears throat> you know, the, the beauty of my own hometown now, by the way, is that we now have six international renewable companies based out of Cork, which, you know, 10 years ago, they didn't exist. Um, and, and it's a cluster. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a thing that, you know, you, you've been involved in and you're very proud of. Um, but you know, we're not just working in Ireland. The majority of our work actually is international, um, out of Cork, but you know, the, the message I would say to you is, look, if you really want to bring all of these technologies on board, yeah, you can wax lyrical and rhetoric about it and they exist, but you actually need to come up with a detailed plan that actually is going to enable them to come on and actually solve our problems. And frankly, that's where when you look inside the engine, there are no component parts. And yeah. and you really have to keep on lobbying and lobbying and talking and talking, knocking on doors to get things done. And by the way, at the end of the day, that that is the resilience of an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs don't accept no as an answer. And that's the one thing I've learned uh, in my time in business. Keep knocking on the door. I uh, think that's a perfect note to finish on. <laughs> that was really very interesting. Yeah. So, John, Eddie, thanks so much. It was re- I really enjoyed the chat. I've learned an awful lot more about my own industry that I'm involved in as well. So thanks so much for sharing your experience and, and for uh, taking me through your journeys. No Thank problem, you. Paddy.